study of ethics does tend to lean towards more legalism. We get this really long checklist of things we ought to do or not ought to do. So he warns us about four different kinds. Legalism regarding justification, legalism and adding to the commands of scripture, legalism and attitudes, and legalism and emphasis. This is the Life in Christ podcast podcast ministry of The Landing Church in Duluth, Minnesota. My name is Brent Nelson. I'm one of the pastors on the pastoral staff here, and I'm joined by one of our elders, Kevin Johnson. Kevin, glad to have you back to talk about Christian ethics. Here we are again. I'm excited. We had such a tremendous conversation in the last episode about Christian ethics and why we study Christian ethics at all. It's part of a book produced by Wayne Grudem, Dr. Wayne Grudem, called Christian Ethics, and in that book, he gives a very helpful summary of the biblical passages giving foundation for why we pursue Christian ethics as a field of study at all. The question we're answering today, or seeking to answer, is with Wayne Grudem's help, why study Christian ethics? And he gave the answer that it allows us to live lives in keeping with the design of God. And the design of God for us, according to the scriptures summarized in the Westminster Confession, is that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. So the content of the answer is Christian ethics enables us to glorify God. And every believer should say, yeah, that count me in. That's what I want to do. I want to glorify God in private, in public, in my words, in my thoughts, in my heart's emotions, and in my actions. I want to glorify God in everything that I am and, and do What does that mean practically? Well, Dr. Grudem broke it down and he said it means that your character will be in keeping with the character of Christ. It means the results or fruit of your life will bear the similar fruit to the fruit of Christ's life. And it means that you will have behavior that's recognizable as having one who follows Christ. So we'll get into that behavior in just a moment. There's a passage of Scripture that, Kevin, you had used and presented in the class, and I wanted to read that now. It's from 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. Here's what the Word of God says. For to this you have been called, Peter talking to the believers who read his letter, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. I'm going to pause there. Don't become confused. The example of Christ isn't an impossible one to follow that's meant to only discourage you. If you're listening right now and you say, oh, sure, put Christ in front of me and as, a, as an example, and all I will do is become discouraged. Or if I'm successful at all, I'll become proud and self-boastful. No, no, let's read on. Christ, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Peter there is quoting from Isaiah 53 when he says, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Those are direct allusions to Isaiah 53. And what they mean for Peter and for his original readers and for us is that wonderful transformation has happened. When Christ died on the cross, he took away my sin. 
He took away my self-reliance and my pride and my uh, fear and anger and doubt and unbelief of all sorts and stripes and kinds, and he replaced it with the new birth, the new heart, as the prophets talk about. And he says, out of that new heart, I have an example to follow in Christ. Now my heart wants to look to Jesus and say, how did Jesus respond when enemies came against him? How did Jesus respond when he suffered? How did Jesus respond when he was lied about or criticized? How did Jesus respond when he was hungry or tired or frustrated or disappointed or betrayed? All of those are wonderful examples now for the Christian to look to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, work your character in me. Help me to see you as my example because you have died for my sins. So by way of summary, we have already looked at how to glorify God by pursuing the character that Christ shows us, by pursuing the results or the fruit that comes from a Christ-like life. And now we're talking specifically about behavior. That's where the rubber meets the road, wouldn't you say? It is. And we can be assured that God is not neutral about the behavior of of his faithful. Like if you refer to John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or 1 John 2, 3 and 4, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It doesn't say you have to keep it perfectly. Yeah. The aim, the intent, the the overarching kind of, as we talked about, the trajectory of our life is to uh, can pursue obedience, uh, pursue keeping his commands. Um, so those who love God, those who know Christ, will keep God's commands. A person cannot truthfully claim that he's a Christian, but neglect God's commands. What if someone says, I don't always know what God commands? What 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 is God's preferences or his will in certain situations? How do we respond to that person? Well, the only, I think, biblical way is to say Scripture is our authority on that. Um, some people want to say, well, I, I feel like it ought to be this. I, you know, I feel this, this connection, and I feel warm fuzzies if I go that direction. That may be an emotional or behavioral reaction, but really we can only ground ourselves truthfully in God's Word. So uh, 2 Timothy 3, we read, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's God who provides his word, thankfully, praise to him, as our sole authority on what's right, what's wrong, what behavior accords with a God-glorifying life versus those actions that cast shadow on God's character and his reputation of the gospel. So by God's grace together, over the weeks that remain in our studies together, our podcast, we're going to focus on a lot of different situational kind of things. We're talking about euthanasia, self-defense, suicide. There's a lot of weighty things that we're going to be talking about. But when we think about those things, Scripture, and this goes back to the systematic theology that we studied long a, a year ago, Scripture has to be our ultimate authority. Right. So there are going to be times, aren't there, when the culture or the winds of thinking in our culture or the preferences of our culture or even the thoughts of my own heart and the ruminations of my own mind and the inclinations of my own emotions are going to lead me away from Scripture. And I'm, I'm faced with a crisis at that point. Mm-hmm. Will I believe what the Bible says? Because the Bible is not hard to understand. 
there might be some passages that take some digging in, but most of what the Bible teaches is not terribly hard to understand. Right. It's actually much harder to receive. <laughs> it's much harder to agree with uh, because it seems out of step with where my emotions and maybe the collective emotions of our culture are. Yeah, that, you, that is a normal thing because the fallen world's not going to seek after glorifying God, not going to necessarily be in tune with his word. They're going to feel like, oh, we're all kind of doing this our own way and it's, everything's okay. You know, yeah. this kind of relativism, moral relativism. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, Paul talks in Philippians 2 about obeying the word, and it, you you drew attention to that. I thought it was especially helpful, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Yeah, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So you see that tension like so many other places, or yeah. you're at work, and God's at work, and God's the propelling for my work, so... Uh, but there is an aspect where you are working by God's grace, by his power, through his power, for his glory. I'm so glad that uh, phrase with fear and trembling is included because for so many reasons. But one is because it implies that if I'm going to step away from the comfort and security of my own sense of emotional right and wrong, and I'm going to step out in faith, as it were, on the on the waves to go to Jesus and do it his way, obey his commands with his design and his word, there's a certain fear and trembling that should attend that act of faith. It's a healthy, holy fear and trembling. There are some dangers, aren't there? Uh, Dr. Grudem talks about it. You summarized it marvelously. Kevin, I would, I would so appreciate, and I think every one of us listening would so appreciate, your drawing attention to four different species of legalism that can sometimes creep into our thinking when we're, when we're pondering certain behavior. Well, study of ethics does tend to lean towards more legalism. We get this really long checklist of things we ought to do or not ought to do. Yeah. Um, so he warns us about four different kinds, legalism regarding justification, legalism and adding to the commands of Scripture, legalism and attitudes, and legalism and emphasis. So justification... Uh, being the first one, it's by grace alone. We've talked about that last episode. We'll talk about it every every day the Lord gives us breath. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone, not a result of works. Uh, that's the heart of the gospel. We dare not step away from that. Right. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law... No one is justified. It says it like three different ways there. Yeah. Just in case it was confusing, <laughs> believer. That's right. It's never been by works. It's never going Amen. to be works. Amen. Praise God. If a person says, no, I'm not falling into legalism with regard to my justification or my salvation, they still might fall into that second species of legalism. Right. Yeah, legalism by adding to the commands of Scripture. And it's yeah. so tempting to go there. You remember Jesus, he criticized the Pharisees for the very thing, how they would elevate man-made traditions above God's commands. Uh, so an example that that I, I was thinking about and I shared there was Mark 7, where we read the Pharisees requiring people to ceremonially wash before eating. and But yet, at the same time, they were foregoing God-given commands of caring for and honoring their parents by instead offering that to the temple. So Christ in verse 8 says to the Pharisees, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Lord, protect us from that kind of legalism where we elevate some sort of tradition yeah. 
and somehow dishonor our parents, dishonor God um, through that. And there's others, there's several other New Testament passages, and I'm sure that you and I can cite all sorts of examples this side of heaven where believers still and often do elevate traditions to a near scriptural level. Yeah. So examples maybe in the past, churches could have forbidden playing of cards or dancing. And there's lots and lots of different passages. Uh, for the listener at home, you could think of Galatians 4, uh, verses 10 and 11, Colossians 2, 16, Acts 15, 19 through 31. Those are all different examples where you see people trying to elevate things that God does not elevate. They might be good things, but they become God things, and it's, not a, it's no longer a good thing. Ways of dressing. Yes. Cars, homes, other purchases you make, haircut styles, music preferences, Grudem includes food preferences, ways of raising your children, whether you, whether you send your children to public school, private school, or home school. Um, music uh, style preferences, whether you observe trick-or-treating on Halloween. Those are examples that Grudem has given, and there's really many, many other examples. Do you, do you close your eyes when you pray, or do you keep your eyes open? I mean, there's all kinds of things that are personal traditions and trends in Christendom that are not declared in Scripture. So we want to be very, very careful not to turn into rules and laws all the many things that we might do and might find as preferable. We might like certain music or certain food or certain lifestyles, but we dare not make them the kind of behavior which, A, justifies us before God. It isn't. It doesn't. Nor is it the kind of behavior that makes God like us more as if it was extra credit. We often think of this this legalism by um, adding to the commands of Scripture is often like, yes, 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 I'm saved, but God actually likes me better than you because I behave in ways that I can show is more in keeping with His Word. That's, that's a smug, proud arrogance that I think ought to be repented of in my heart when it shows up in, in, and in the entire church. And it actually, that lends itself right into moving to the third category, which is attitudes, where yeah. Grudem highlights three different types of individuals that can demonstrate legalistic attitudes that are at odds with the gospel. The person that's the critical, the proud, or the bitter. God, through Apostle Paul, directs believers to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So the critical, you come away from them, they're regularly demonstrating disapproval verbally or non-verbally. Instead of coming away from them being encouraged and being built up, you feel torn down, you feel guilty, you feel subpar. And don't point fingers, because I'm sure we, if, if you come away from that conversation, you know, God would still use that. Well, or there's the proud, kind of the one you were just referencing there. So looking around, the proud is much like that Pharisee that we read in the parable in Luke 18, who thanks God that he's not like all these sinners that are around him, like especially that tax collector over there. Oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. But the irony there is that the proud are handicapped in their affections because they're blind to the unbearable weight of their own sin and the divine measure of forgiveness Christ affords us on the cross. And then the last area is the bitter, and that's similarly holding fast to the slights occasioned by others rather than leaving justice in the hands of God, the just judge, forgiving others as God has forgiven us. When we rightly understand our own sin, that's, I, I taught on systematic theology on sin, and wow, I just caught afresh by how truly sinful I am. And you know what? Rather than being burdened by that, I'm just so tremendously thankful at the forgiveness that I've received. And that ought to make me a forgiving person, because by comparison, Joe, Joe Smith down the street, he can't do anything against me like I've done to the Lord. That's right. So yeah. I've received that forgiveness. I need to, by God's grace, forgive others. This is gold. This is absolute gold, because I think I'm convicted of, at times in my life, having these three kinds of attitudes, critical, proud, and bitter. I think I'm all. convicted by these things. 
it doesn't it doesn't mean the critical one doesn't mean that we don't make distinctions of sound doctrine and error. No. It just means that we don't do so with a critical spirit toward those who may have purported or fallen into the error. And we don't in pride act as if we ourselves have no blind spots or anything to learn. But we come with a humble teachable attitude that says I hold fast to what I know to be true in scripture, but I'm always aware that I have more to learn and I have more to understand than I yet do. And then the bitter, oh, how helpful it is not to let a record of wrongs against other believers grow inside of me. If I am doing that, there's a kind of a legalistic attitude at work in my life. Absolutely. It's toxic to our souls. Absolutely toxic to hold on to these slights that have been held against us. It's kind of like that one man who's been forgiven a a lifetime worth of debt, and this other guy owes him $100, and he just beats him up and throws him in jail. The writer of Hebrews calls it the root of bitterness. I just wanted, I want it rooted out. Well, there's a fourth and final kind of legalism. Maybe this is the hardest one to identify, but it's probably the most common. Yeah, the legalism and emphasis. So it's kind of equivalent to what I think R.C. Sproul calls majoring in the minors. Mm-hmm. You can look, you can think of Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, that they went so far as to tithe from their herb gardens while neglecting to dispense justice and extending mercy. In fact, I was just reading in Luke the other day, parallel account. He's like, don't, you ought to still like honor the Lord with all sorts of good impulses like that, but don't neglect the greater things, right? It wouldn't have been wrong for them to tithe off of herbs. Absolutely. If that's done in faith uh, for the glory of God, that's a good impulse. But if you're neglecting justice and mercy, taking care of the widow and uh, Lord, uh, save us from that. So yeah, it it was really edifying to go through this. Uh, I'd encourage people to look at James 3 as as kind of assessing more in that area about how we can look to the Lord and care for others in that way. We need to be praying for ourselves, for others, that our study of biblical ethics would instill character of Christ in us and those around us, so parents of your children, of, um, of our spouse, uh, but not in a way that makes us proud or wise in our own eyes, critical towards the needs of others and around us, and made in His image. And Lord, we ask that you be pleased as we gaze upon you in our study of ethics to produce those results and abundant, abundant fruit according to your grace. Kevin, thanks. This has been outstanding. Just as fulfilling and as life-giving as the first episode, thank you for the labor you've put in to study Grudem, to study God's Word, to present it in this helpful format to our people now in this podcast. What a blessing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Life in Christ. If you have a church home, go to church every Lord's Day. Dive in. Give of your life, your time, and treasure. Invest yourself in the local church. If you're not a believer and you want to know what it's like to be born again, to have the life of Christ dwelling within you and know that your life brings glory to God, go to God's Word. Go to a trusted Christian friend. Go to your local church. Go online to any trusted Christian resource online and seek the Lord while He may be found, calling Him while He is near. Thanks for listening. We look forward to the next time we can connect together on Life in Christ. Take care. Thank you for listening to Life in Christ. This podcast is a ministry of The Landing Church in Duluth, Minnesota. For more resources or information about The Landing, visit www.thelanding.church.